Welcome to the UK Scriptwriters Podcast with me, Danny Stack. And me, Tim Clegg, and a special guest today as well. Special guest today is a co-writer of the Mad Max Fury Road film, Brendan McCarthy. Thank you, Brendan, for joining us. Hello. Hey there. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brendan. Brendan's calling us... Uh live if you like um from uh, ireland where he is at the minute um on his phone so please listeners excuse any kind of audio blips and dropout bits and so on but um i think it'll be all right and uh, and we're so excited to talk to him we don't care yeah it was a, a very easy win for us um this interview brendan because you got in contact with us and said how about it fellas so we were like only too glad to uh, accommodate um, yeah, well, I'm doing I'm doing my bit for the uh, Mad Max, Max uh, Golden Globe and Oscar push. Well, yeah, yeah. and uh, well, obviously, George, Mr. George Miller getting all the um, due attention that he deserves, but we like to focus on the um, hidden gems yeah. of, of the film, which is obviously the writers all the time. So, um, mm. you know, Mad Max, film of the year for me, 2015. Uh, congratulations! It must be very exciting to work on a project like that. Um, I'm sure we have plenty of uh, interesting or even geeky things to ask you about it right so i suppose just generally yeah how did you how did it come about because tell us a little bit about your really interesting and quite varied career and how did you get to working on the new mad max right um well i've been a, a lifetime mad max fan uh, uh i enjoyed the first one in those days uh uh, in order to see Mad Max films, you had to go to what were known as the midnight special screenings, which were basically in porn theatres around, dotted around London. Yeah. So I saw the first Mad Max on a midnight screening with the cars that ate Paris as a double bill. Um, and that kind of gave me a sort of feeling for the sort of the slightly surreal Australian vehicle movies. I thought that was, you know, you sort of look at it and think, well, that was a pretty strange double bill retrospectively. Um, and uh, it was around the time when you saw stuff like A Razorhead and The Hills yeah. of Eyes and, you know, all that kind of slightly left-field cult stuff. Uh, and Mad Max and... Um, although Mad Max was more of a uh, a kind of revenge movie, it was sold like that, There was it had a quality about it that was very accomplished for a guy's first film. And uh, tonally had something going on with it as well. Um I, I actually was in Australia when I saw Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, and that blew me away. And that really, you know, it's kind of like one of those epiphany moments when you sort of think, hang on a minute, there's something going on here. And uh, I, in those days, you know, pre-VHS, um, um, it was hard, you know, you had to wait a year for a film to come out on video. So I just, the only way you could see a movie if you liked it was go and see it again in the cinema. So I went back to see Mad Max 2 about 20 times, you know, each time, you know, paying to get in. Because I had somehow, I felt a compulsion to kind of solve how they'd done it. How had, you know, how had George Miller put together this film that seemed so perfect and radical and edgy? I mean, in its day, Road Warrior was the, uh, something like The Matrix, you know, it, it was an era-defining film that changed stuff, particularly in the action genre. And remained the high watermark of action movies until Fury Road, really. Um, so, um, I, as I was in Australia and I, and I became kind of slightly obsessed with uh, Mad Max, um, not not to the point of being a stalker, but just interested in the kind of creative, creatively how they'd accomplished it. I managed to track down different writers, people involved in the production, and met everybody attached to it except George Miller. 
And um, so I send him. I sent him in my work a few times over the years, and um, you know, Thunderdome came out, which kind of impressed me less, but nonetheless had some good stuff in it. And um, as the years went by, uh, you know, I kind of, uh, you know, Mad Max faded from people's uh, radar. I still felt a strong interest in it. Thought, well, there's got to be a better movie than Thunderdome to be told on Mad Max. And uh, so I, used to, I wrote to George Miller a few times. And um, uh, what happened is that I was I got involved in the beginning at the very earliest days of long form computer animation pre Pixar, and I did a TV series in Canada called Reboot, which was uh, like the first, as I say, long form computer animation. Uh, material and uh, I did an episode of it which I created which was a pastiche of Mad Max and I sent it to George and they and his um, production company phoned up and said do you want to meet up George is going to be in Hollywood in a few weeks and so I made sure I'll be, I was in Hollywood as well and I met him and we had a great chat about Mad Max and really I was just trying to get over to him that um, another visit to the, the wasteland you know would be appreciated <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I had some ideas and talked to them, him about them, and uh, got a phone phone call about three or four months later saying, "Why don't you come over to Australia and knock about some ideas with George? He's kind of pretty excited about doing a new Mad Max film now." And uh, that's how it started. When 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 was that? Because I know there's been oh, okay. a few false starts. A long time ago. That was that yeah. was 17 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, yeah, he's probably thinking, isn't that that weirdo from 30 years ago who sent me all this fan mail? <laughs> Yeah, but no, it was al- it was already twenty years ago, almost. All right. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, um, you, well, I wasn't. You know, I think the thing is, if you have some talent and if you've got something to say, people don't dismiss it. If it's just, you know, can I have a shaving of Mel Gibson's leather jacket, please? They're gonna, yeah. I think, loony. Well, it's it's, it's but, interesting hearing that, Brendan, because it sounds like it comes from you know a passionate fan um, point of view from from your kind of starting point with Mad Max that in this day and age it would probably be a documentary on Netflix or something about you sending right. stuff to George Miller and being really passionate yeah. about Mad Max well, but I, say, I was sending him stuff once every five years it wasn't like every week yeah okay yeah. Uh, uh, but what were you and doing I had something, I had something to send. I'd, I'd done this really funny um, pastiche of Mad Max called Bad Bob and we sent it to him and he had, at that time people weren't particularly au fait with computer animation as I say it was pre-Toy Story so he was interested straight away technically in what we were doing and uh, so when I met him the conversation initially was about computer animation what is it what does it cost how are you doing this stuff Um, and at that point the company I was working for Mainframe who were the leading CGI people as I say because Pixar hadn't hit yet we were getting stuff like um, say Shrek when it was Chris Farley as Shrek and they were mm-hmm. going to do it as a dot frame Shrek but with computer animated backgrounds, we got sent the script to see whether or not we would provide the computer animated backgrounds. Okay. So, you know, we, it was kind of, um, it, was just, it was swilling around. Before Pixar just focused it all up with Toy Story and said, you know, a feature film can work and then DreamWorks got themselves, uh, you know, focused into an animation studio. Then it all took off, but this was the, this was the sort of five years before all that was going on. I mean, we even had, just funny enough, just today, obviously, we heard David Bowie died. But oh. David Bowie, when he saw Reboot, the TV series, got in touch with our studio and came up and visited and wanted to know all about computer animation because he was really 
hot on the internet and you know as you know he got he's very he was a very te- technically savvy guy and very forward looking and he wanted to wanted to you know essentially he was going to talk about doing uh, a video with uh, using our techniques uh, for one of his songs so he actually came up with the, the studio what I like about you, uh, Brendan, and what you've described there and what I've read about you as well is that, you know, you're not a kind of guy that's just, uh, uh, and don't take this the wrong way, but you're not like a full-time writer as in you're just sitting there writing. You're doing all these other things too, designing, like you say, getting involved in new technologies, which I like Ooh. as well. Uh, how do you describe yourself and do you see all that as being one thing do you try and put things into little boxes how do you see your career well i have a lot of problems uh i don't have a lot of problems what let me rephrase that i have a problem with say interacting with hollywood because right. i do lots of different things i mean i i went to hollywood just um after after the premiere of the mad max film as part of your usual writing deal and i thought well i'll go and uh go around and visit a few agents and see if I can kind of land a decent agent on the back of Fury Road. But the reaction I got was so bizarre. You just sort of like start bashing your head against the wall because it's saying, so let me get this right. You're a writer, but you're also a designer. So what are you? And you think, well, I'm both, but apparently you can't be both. (laughs) You have to be one or the other. I then even had it broken down to, so let me get this right. You write live action, action movies like Mad Max, but also you write animation. So which are you, animation or live action? You go, well, I'm both. It's a, but you can't be both. We have to market you to something. You know, and you sort of think, ah, you just sort of... So really, I've had to steer away from all that stuff because um, a talent like mine doesn't slot into just the usual boxes. So you... Uh, I've had a whole career from just uh, interacting. Usually, I, I get on well with directors, producers, people like that who actually make movies and generally not uh, interact with um, some of the, uh, the the apparatus of Hollywood, as it were. So, um, you know, that brings its problems. But at the same time, when you're actually dealing with creative people, most directors I've dealt with, from George Miller to David Lynch, Ridley Scott, all these kinds of people, they get it straight away because they're kind of like that themselves. Yeah. They're storytellers. That's they're right. They're storytellers who write bits and do visuals and understand visual effects. That's their job. Yeah. So, I mean, I immediately get on with those guys and we speak the same language. When I deal with something like an agent, that's like I'm talking to a, almost like an accountant or something, a completely different yeah. uh, sort of language. No, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that. Let me throw out a statement to you that um, you can disagree with or agree with or whatever. But um, having a strong design background and what we might call an eye on visual storytelling your works on comics and so on do you think that that led to the visual strength of the story of Mad Max which is very light on dialogue but massively strong on visual storytelling does that is that does yeah that's my statement see if you agree with it yep I absolutely agree with it and one of the biggest problems we have say for example with the wards and people perceiving uh, screenwriting is that because there's not a lot of dialogue in Mad Max, this is uh, how crude it gets, I am, I'm sorry to say, but uh, with, with, a dial- with a movie like uh, Fury Road, where you've got a screenplay which has a small amount of dialogue in it, people tend to dismiss the screenplay and think, well, there was only 20 lines of dialogue, you know. <laughs> Yet every single moment in Fury Road was scripted, which is why George 
chose, we both decided to go down the road of storyboarding as the method of writing because you can't actually re realistically verbally describe action. You have to visually represent it. It's much better to do it that way. So people don't really understand that the screenplay, the hybrid form of the screenplay, which was a kind of like, a, a, you know, a, a 3,000 frame comic book, really. Um, uh, so it's been quite a strange thing. You know, people want to see a, a giant written traditional script. And, you know, George, people like George Miller have been doing it for 40 years. Just say, like, things, scripts like that he thinks are redundant. Hmm. Well, it, that's really fascinating to me, Brendan, because I'm I'm a bit of a script script geek, and I love you know um, dissecting screenplays and seeing the sure. structure and all the rest of it. And when I watch Mad Max, I, I I see it as something that really is very intensely structured and very pinpoint in what it's doing. And even yeah. with some um, lines of dialogue, which I might be reading more into than it was intended. But I'm wondering, from what you said there, was there ever a traditional script for Mad Max, or was it just you? and the team developing that kind of storyboard and action? No, first, the process was, I met George, we bounced around a load of ideas. George had a core idea, which I then developed with him, and we got a, then a, it was about a 100-minute story. We then, um, for about a year, went through that story and just worked and worked it over. And as we went through it, I would sketch mainly design ideas and what characters look like and what the vehicles would look like and what the environments look like. As we went along, so we kind of got an idea of what the movie looked like overall. And this was a kind of prose, bits of dialogue, bits of drawings, all put together into a document that ran for about 100 pages. Right, once that was locked down and we had the ending and, you know, lots of stuff changed radically and, you know, endings changed and characters got lost and new ones came along. After we sorted it all out, we then set about then doing a definitive version of what we just written, which was the storyboard version, and we then imported into the storyboard uh, dialogue, uh, wrote new dialogue, got rid of old dialogue, you know, just the standard way of working, except yeah. we were working... I mean, often, um, for example, we would draw, say, maybe a 10-minute sequence in storyboard form. Me and George would sit down, work the shots out, and a couple of other storyboard artists had joined us by then, and then we'd render up all the storyboards. George would go off and do something else. I think he was working on um, Happy Feet, beginning that. Hmm. Um, he'd come back, and we'd have cut out all the little frames of the storyboards onto a giant desk bin. And he'd sit down, and he'd look at all the cuts. So what he was looking at were the cuts of the movie, and he'd move them around, he'd take ones out, he'd do a little scribble to say, I need another shot here. And so the, the script was written as much in that way as it was sitting in, uh, with a keyboard and typing out words. You know, um, because of my way of working, um, the, I'd always been put off uh, writing screenplays because it, I thought it would have just been sitting in a room on my own, writing fashion way on a typewriter, which I find boring. Um, so I'm much more interested in the way I naturally fell into a way of working with George that, you know, we both work. That's how we naturally work. So. Great. And there was a third co-writer as well, wasn't there? Nico. Yeah, Nico came on about... I, I spent two years on the movie, then wrote another film with George, a computer animated feature film, which I spent another couple of years on. Worked around George for about five years overall. When I left, um, Nico came on. Nico's a dramaturg in that he was... Uh, 
George Boyne in just to kind of look at the whole script. And uh, he'd known Nico for years, and Nico was actually an actor who'd been in Mad Max number one. Hmm. Uh, so Nico looked at the whole script, sort of brought certain things to his attention. Thematically, this could be strengthened if we, you know, add bits here, and this is a bit of a red herring. Why don't we just phase it out? You know. But by then I'd left. I'm just aware of what Nico did, and Nico came back. And as the film took so long to get made, another ten years. Um, Nico would come back and revisit the place when when it would get green green lit again. George would employ Nico and he'd come back on again and do a bit more streamlining. The final film you see is about eighty percent of what I wrote with George. Right. And and what what George and Nico then refined uh, and came up with some great stuff uh, that was seen so blindingly obvious when you see yeah. the film. But we didn't. When me, myself and George were doing it, we didn't see it. For example. Yeah. The control of the population in the Citadel by water was not something we'd worked out. We had some, another device. And um, obviously, I guess through co new conversations, Nico and George said, really, he should be pumping up water. And that's how he controls the population, because you've got to control them somehow. Mm. So he's got an ideology for controlling war boys, which is, you know, a critique of the standard, you know, death for glory, etc. But also, he has to control the commodities. If that became the theme of the movie, the control of commodities, he has to control the water, the most basic, and then the human body itself. So once the theme of the film became obvious, then Nico was able to um, focus certain bits of it that needed sharpening and, and did a very nice job on that. It's, um, it's a fantastic way of working, to me anyway, because I, I, that's... I, that's just sounds sounds so um, visual, visual, like I say, it's like you know, previs. Yeah, exactly. Did, when you um, when you watch the film now, how close mm. would you say it is to the storyboard, or was that storyboard in a, in essence an inspiration? And then obviously things on set and different cameras and yeah. new technologies would have changed anyway, and techniques yeah. come and go. So actually. Mm -hmm it's moved quite a bit further on since the storyboard. No, no, it's about 90% to the storyboards it's and there's well, a 10% addition, which, as you say, stuff that was fat on the hoof when they were shooting it, and, you know, second... I mean, there was, there was some interesting stuff that went on that you're probably not aware of. And um, but, um, in the middle of the shoot, Warner Brothers decided that the Citadel sequences were too expensive and they were just to the movie starting with her turning off the road and they'd cut out the front and end bookends of the film. Mm -hmm. And this was like, I was just thinking, holy, holy Christ. You know, I'd heard, I, George invited me over to Africa to watch the shoot, and, uh, you know, that just happened, and it was like really threw everybody a wrench into everything. So we were all starting to think about, right, how do we then make this work? But George, strange enough, had a lot of calm about it because he, he knew that they didn't have a movie without those bookends. And by the time he delivered this amazing footage, Warner's meant, actually, you're right, so we're now going to... So that's the, re, the shoots in Sydney that followed the shoot in Africa. That was reported as reshoots, but they weren't reshoots. They were actually the stuff that was originally planned to be shot, featuring the Citadel at the front and end of the movie. Um, that was the stuff that Warner Brothers for a while took out and then put back in again. You know? This is the kind of stuff you have to deal with when you make a movie. It's horrific, the kind of stuff that they, these uh, people pull on it, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it makes me think about the future because, um, you know, it's been a big, a big hit, justifiably so. And but what I what 
I think you had going for you in the development was time. You know, you had yeah. the time to, to really polish those storyboards, as you say, yeah. George, going away, reflecting upon it, coming back fresh to yeah, it, moving yeah. stuff around. If if people yeah. get all excited about it now and they want another one, you know, out in a couple of years, you won't you won't yeah. have that. What's the plans for the future? Um well, um you're right in that in the end, the endless delays on this film benefited it because it had what they call baking time. The baking time on this movie was, as you say, it gave it plenty of time to really consider what the film was about. Uh, the shooting of it, um, okay, that was as, as hellish as you'd imagine it would be. But also because Warner's then decided they were going to add the bookends back in, they moved the shoot, they moved the release date back a year, which gave George a really great run on post-production, so he could really make that. Um, all the the CGI stuff that would be added in post, uh, but make it very sweet, so uh, that you sort of thought, well, all right, the storm's a bit CGI-ish, but the Citadel stuff is almost like natural. Like, most people don't even realise that a, a very high proportion of backgrounds and sort of shots in the canyon with with, with those guys, the rock rider guys, bouncing up and down on the bikes. A lot of the sort of background was computer animated, but people don't even realise it. It looks so good because they're not yeah. making a big deal out of it, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But what you're saying, but what you're saying then about you know you had 15 years to develop Mad Max one because of all the delays and shoot it and post it. The next one's got to be done in a couple of years. Is it going to suffer? Well, who knows? Maybe yeah. maybe it'll lack that kind of that uh, sense of depth and uh, the, the sense that the world is so deeply established in um, Fury Road. You don't know. I mean, I've read, I have read uh, another script which George wrote with Nico, you know, about five years ago. Uh, when I, uh, and, you know, it's good. And we'll see, you know, I'll just see, I won't say anything about it, but uh, I'll just say that, you know, that may be the next one he does. Who knows? Great. Well, I've got a, a, question, a story question about Mad Max, uh, yep. which I, I think would be great to get from you, seeing as you obviously were so involved. Because online, yep. um, either social media or even film reviews of uh, Mad Max, have pointed yeah. out that it's a uh, more Furiosa's story, which I actually yeah. always disputed in my mind. And I thought, well, I'm right. going to speak to the writer. I'll just ask. Yeah, that's yeah. us. <laughs> um, I mean, in your mind, does it really matter who, you know, that it's Furiosa's story or Mad Max's story? Or would you actually say, no, it's, it's Mad Max's story all the way kind of thing? Well, um, one of the big things that happened with Mad Max um, is that the story that you've seen, Fury Road, is the story that was written with me and George that we concocted 15 years ago. So that's it. The story hasn't changed at all, you know, from the version that I wrote with him. But the big thing that changed was that Mel Gibson was going to be Mad Max. It was going to be the fourth Mad Max in, in the Mel Gibson series. Now, due to all sorts of things, Mel's melt, meltdown and film being up and running and then collapsing two or three times, Mel had to drop out as he got older. And then they look around for another Mad Max, and then Heath Ledger was pretty much going to play Mad Max, and then he dies, you know. And then finally Tom Hardy appears and feels like he's... As jo I was talking to George Miller about this a couple of months ago when I was in Sydney. He said, when you think about it, who else could I cast? Who else is there? You know? And you realize that Tom Hardy was the natural choice. And, um, but Tom Hardy's a different... sort of had a different weight as an actor, I feel, to Mel Gibson. 
And Mel Gibson, having done three Mad Maxes beforehand, brings a history with him. Mel Gibson is Mad Max, if you look at the first trilogy. You know, he doesn't have to act as if he's Mad Max. He is Mad Max. He doesn't do, you know, he dials himself down, but he is Mad Max innately. And um, so Mel Gibson in the role against Charlize Theron as Furiosa is a much weightier Max. When you take uh, put Tom Hardy in there, Tom brings his own interpretation of Mad Max, but he's like a new Mad Max and isn't as weighty on that side of the um, um, of, of, you know, of the balance. So it feels that she's stronger than him in the film, you know, as a kind of presence. Um, that's that was my understanding of why the, the, it felt a bit imbalanced in favour of Furiosa. Mm. Uh, well, it, it does a very know. interesting thing in terms of story, having dual protagonists, but making it work all the same. And what I really like... Yeah, but well, um, I'm also talking about the weight. Your perception of the weight of the character in the film is that yeah. she is weightier than him. If you put Mel Gibson in there, he weighs it back over to Max. Yes. Um, and that's a casting thing. And so once George had lost his main Mad Max, it's like Raiders of Lost Ark without Harrison Ford or something. You know, once you've lost that, you've got to then you know, eventually find the right character who's going to bring his own dynamic to it. And uh, you, you don't quite know what that's going to be because Tom Hardy hasn't played Mad Max before. Yeah. But the story, I mean, as you just highlighted, it was all visually driven from the get-go. So even yeah. a character like Mad yeah. Max, he had, a, he, had a lot of, he had a lot of emotional motivation that was skillfully woven in as the story progressed. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand the, you know, the critique that Max, if you like... Uh, is lighter in the film than he should have been. There should have been a kind of weightier, maybe more dramatic scenes or whatever. But um, I think that uh, if you consider also a lot of the publicity and how the film got picked up on social media was on the feminist uh, thing got very, I felt, overstated hmm. uh, in the terms of the overall movie. I mean, if you just pick up the she's freeing these girls from sex slavery and taking them to an idyllic matriarchal society. If you pick that bit up, that's a, certainly a strong part of the film, but it's not the whole film. Yeah. Um, so if you consider, really, Max is strapped to the front of a vehicle for the first sort of half an hour or something. Um, he then bests the warrior woman in a fight, takes her truck, but is persuaded to take them with him just... Uh, I won't go into why, but you've seen the film. Yeah. Um, as he as he goes along, he can't wait to get rid of them at some point, but gradually becomes invested in what they are about. Mm. You see her go to the green place that doesn't exist, so she's failed in her mission and is basically taking those girls to their death. Um, she they meet the old ladies and decide that again the woman the the, the Sharon character decides to take them all out into the wasteland and find somewhere. But Max, who's lived out there, knows that there's nothing out there. And in the end, he intervenes and says, look, the only green place I've seen is the one back there. And if you notice in the film, the actual only greenery in the film is at the top of that citadel. Yeah. Um, so, his, so then it's Max who becomes the pivotal... That turnaround scene, which comes at the end of Act 2, when he, they kind of agree that they're going to go back to the green place and try and Take that, take the, get there ahead of the warlord and then defend it. So we see the warrior woman, uh, the, the Shalice Theron mission ends in failure, and it's Max who takes it up 
and then turns it around, drafts what they're all trying to do, gives them the solution, and then puts them, everything he's got into bringing about, letting their um, mission, if you like, be accomplished, and then new societies start to form in the green place that they've just come from. And then he leaves and continues on his wandering peregrinations. Yeah, brilliant. But I think that's all, I think that's, in a way, what people are excited about with the story, you know, is the fact that, um, you know, Max, more so than just being on a hero's journey, it's all about him, he's a conduit to action. He's a, a provider of solutions and an enabler for people that he sees are struggling. And I, I, yeah. I think that's why people were so excited about it and, and felt that it was a fresh story even mm. though it's from a franchise that's you know been been around for yeah. many decades now they yeah they, but we we it's never exciting. thought that it's different you know it's, yeah, yeah it's it's different it's it's got a different no. flavor and energy sorry Brent, yeah, did i miss me, what you said there no i no i'm just saying that we never thought about it in the fourth installment of the next the franchise kind of yeah thing. that way of thinking has nothing to do with this i the reason why I love Mad Max as well, and then, you know, the Mad Max films came out, the third one wasn't as good as probably the other two, but it was still interesting, etc. But it felt to me like a franchise that hadn't been completely exploited and milk dry like Terminator and Alien. It had just been left there in the 80s and nobody, everybody had forgotten about it. So when I spoke to George and said, listen, we could, you know, what about a new Mad Max film? What about this? What about that? Think of what it could be, blah. He... He's a guy with a lot of integrity about his work, and so he's not going to do something unless there's an idea in it that interests him. And so once the idea, the core idea of there's a, there's a guy breeding women to perpetuate the human race, uh, there's a woman who dissents from that, suddenly he's, he's interested. There's a new dynamic there. And he told me he always wanted to do a um, female road warrior character. You know, the, the warrior woman in Mad Max 2 almost developed that character into a fully-fledged Mad Max character. Was there never a, a, um, a thought, during all that time, you talked about Mel being attached back in the early days, yeah. And, yeah. and now the time that has gone past, and there's um, you know, kind of, you know, Clint Eastwood's played around with it a lot, the idea of going back and looking at a character and all that time's moved on. Was there never yeah. a, a, a thought, probably because of the way it's developed, but was there never a thought about doing what does a grizzled old Mad Max turn into? Yeah. Does he turn into the guy that's the villain in the story? At the end? Do you see what I mean? Like, was there no, never I know. a thought he, about that? Well, George has, George has said that as well. He said he wants to. He does. He said he wants to avoid the hero who becomes the tyrant, as it's mm -hmm. historically inevitable that you sort of would like to try something else. Look, the thing about Fury Road is when you had Mel Gibson, and I'm talking going back 17 years to when we first talked about the story, the idea that Mel Gibson, as he was then about 40, I think he was just 40 years old then and still viable as Mad Max, the idea that he's still going to be wandering around the wasteland in a pair of black leather trousers looking for himself started to feel a bit old. Yeah. And you felt like maybe it's time for him to join the human race again and be the custodian of a new society. And um, in the original draft that I wrote with George, which was the one that was going to be shot with Mel Gibson when it was first greenlit, um, he goes up in the platform at the end with them at the end right. and stays part of that society because he's found this woman that, you know, you don't think he'll ever meet a woman that he, he could ever, that would ever be equal to him or worthy of him. And, 
key for her. Yet in the Charlize Theron character, you feel that, okay, Max has met her, you know. Um, but um, with again, with the recasting with Tom Hardy, you're not quite sure whether or not there's a sense that Tom Hardy feels too emotionally young to partner with Charlize Theron. So, you know, so listen, you're kind of pointing your finger on all the, the kind of issues that we had and that we discussed and decisions that were made. And listen, I made my decisions and argued for Mel Gibson goes up in the platform at the end and becomes part of society. So he, in, the hero, in the hero myth of Campbell, he doesn't remain in the wasteland forever. He comes mm. back into society. Thus, you see it in modern society now, you know, alcoholism and addiction is the main uh, people avoiding the call, going into the wasteland and then coming back in and rejoining society with the acquiring of wisdom is the kind of psychological explanation of addiction in some ways. You, know, you see it all the time. It's our, it's our Western version of initiation. Oh, wisdom. wisdom. <laughs> Hero's journey. We're getting, see, we're getting back into screenplay stuff. I'm going to get my geek on. Uh, I, right. I just actually want to mention the character of Knox as well. I mean, what an amazing yep. character he is. Mm. And um, wh uh, how did that kind of develop in the story process? I guess um, because Knox what was fun, great about Knox. Knox was a lot of fun because he didn't he it, he didn't bear the weight of the the big sort of themes and the big you know lead lead character uh, dynamics. Yeah, he didn't have to carry the movie. He could be somebody who kind of goofed around a bit on the character arc because he didn't you know so that gave us a lot more he was a lot more fun to write but as but as the themes of the film started to become clearer and you realize actually this film is about this now um uh then you want to start to make sure that you that that nux reflects the core theme of the movie and um so you know gradually we started to modify him and he started to then acquire his own the arc that he acquires which is to move out of the the hypnotized war boy uh, state, you know, somebody who's an ideologue um, into somebody who also realizes that what the girls are saying and what they're trying to do is better than what he's been in, and he fully commits to their cause too. And um, he knows that his, he's, because he's a half life war boy, he's not going to live for long. Um, he knows that, you know, when he's in the truck at the end, he's got to, it's up to him to crash the truck so that they're vision of the green place can come about back in the citadel where he'd come from so mm. you know he complements the theme of the movie i thought very well and and um and that was a great bit of casting as well i thought he really did a good job on it yeah very very much so but it's it's again story-wise i'm very reassured to hear you say that you know in terms of reinforcing the theme that you had obviously from an early days yeah. or maybe what nico helped refine when he came on later yeah. on um, you know, it wasn't just like, you know, some friends of mine have seen the film and say, yeah, I loved it, but it was essentially one long car chase. And I'm thinking, no, it wasn't. What are you talking about? Did you not see I it? I know, that's ridiculous. Yeah, really. <laughs> no, no. But in another what way. Saying, no, no, the yeah. form of the film is one yes. long chase. Yeah. Right? That, that's one thing. And, and the film we looked at the most was Stagecoach. Yeah. All right? Yeah. You know, so you would understand then how do you do a movie where, if you, if, where you see a lot of the dynamics are just people in an enclosed space interacting with each other. I mean, that's quite a challenge to make that interesting, which I think, you know, we, we did. But, um, I mean, you'll see things like, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, I noticed stuff like Tom Hardy when he was 
talking with Charlize Theron in the in the in the war rig cabin as they're driving. You know, he'll do big body turns to say thanks to her, and you think, okay, I know what he's doing there. He's trying to make, he's trying to do something other than sit there talking, you know, being a talking head. What's um What's next for you? That's the that's the always the question um, we like to kind of end on. Okay, it's what are you working on now? What's coming out soon? Where can we see you? Exciting work in another next? ten years time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, um, uh, my career as a graphic novelist goes on. I love comics. Um, you know, it's where I learnt my skills of both writing, drawing, and storytelling. You know, so um, I've just finished after the last year a new graphic novel called Dream Gang. Uh, it's a kind of inception meets the X-Men, if you like, um, is the kind of, you know, that's the Hollywood pitch version, the elevated yeah. pitch version. Um, uh, what it's about is a group of naturally gifted psychics who can travel through dreams at night who uncover a plot by this sort of government, these dark sort of government forces to create a meme that will travel through people's dreams at night and create a nightmare state in those people and then cauterize the uh, higher functions so the spiritual and idealistic elements in human nature are removed. So you've basically got some nice kind of docile cattle who will consume what you want. Um, so Martin Luther King won't be saying, I have a dream. Um, he'll say, I have a special offer at Target. Three <laughs> That's the basic idea, right? So, so the, it's it's about an attempt to um, destroy the higher functions, the spiritual, if you like, in human human nature. Um, and so, it's an invasion from within. And these basically dream surfers, characters who aren't that bothered, uh, get caught up in this. Now, all those characters who these people who like, if it's the three of us at night. We might project ourselves at the dream world and we assume kind of dream personas or avatars. And so I might go as I say, a Batman kind of character, and you say, Oh, there's Brendan, but he's dressed as whatever, you know, his dream character is so and so. So that's how um, it goes on. Um, I've had this project like even longer than Mad Max, it's just taken me this long to get around of it, about 25 years, and I uh, had to radically change it after Inception came up. Yeah. But, uh, anyway, it's kind of become its own thing now, very different, um, a little bit more superhero-y and um, uh, a bit more colourful, it's a little bit like Yellow Submarine or something, but... Um, I can uh, I can send you a link to it if you want to see some pages or whatever. Well, yeah. Where, where should we point people to online generally for yeah. you, do you think? Go to artbrendan.com. That's artbrendan.com, all one word. And you'll see, like, Mad Max pre, uh, production art. You'll see Dream Gang pages. And, and, and basically a kind of uh, uh, a retrospective of my uh, work from, you know, the earliest days when I was doing stuff uh, right at the beginning of the, what was known as the British Invasion in comics, where we, Alan Moore, Grant Morrison, Neil Gaiman, all those guys, and myself and others, you know, we took the American industry by storm and um, changed the face of comics. You know, that was really where I first made my name. One of the interesting things is that Hollywood has picked up on comics. Comics are now huge, massive yeah. blockbuster business. And comic book creators are now, you know, considered the equal of any other type of creator, which has been a great achievement. Well, I think that's part of those early days, like you say, in 2000 AD, having yeah. that as a way for those guys to cut their teeth, you know, and get involved in. Well, we all did it. We all did our yeah. We all did our bit in 2000 AD. Yeah, it's it's a shame not to have 
um, that sort of thing being so mainstream and available anymore. Just, do you know what I mean? Because it was saying you'd be a yeah. bit cheeky and bunk off school and get down the news agents. And do you know what I mean? It was all a bit. Well, it's a shame those days are gone. Maybe. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, the heyday of 2008 in the 80s and stuff. It was selling half a million copies. Was part of the national conversation. Yeah. Now it's diminished and become sadly got taken over by more of the game world thing. And the trouble with, um, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but the trouble with gaming, you know, video games, etc., is there's very, there's very little interaction with society as a whole. You don't find a new game coming out with a critique of this and it gets reviewed in the same way a movie or a book does. It's very much in its own little world. And 2000 AD has slightly gone into that stuff now, so it's kind of become less relevant. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that, well, because of the long lead time, you know, that was that saying that games can't seem to be right on the edge like 2000 AD used to be. It could not be topical, but it would be of the moment and talk about concerns and issues and thoughts, yeah. you know, so, uh, around society at the time and do it quite punctually. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's right. Kind of there, was a quick, there was a quick turnover, and 2000 AD was, if you like, the venue in a way that, say, the comedy store would be in the venue for all the yeah. upcoming comics. Yeah. Um, 2000 AD was that meeting place for Alan Moore and all those guys. Yeah. You know, we didn't know each other existed until yeah. we all turned up in the same place in the same decade. <laughs> well, well, let's get out of our nostalgia. Yeah, we should probably wrap up. And, and, and wrap it up. But it's been, okay. you know, very exciting to hear about visual storytelling and that different way of working been exciting to me yeah uh, definitely yeah. and the inside track of how mad max developed and how it got to on screen so thank you uh witness yeah. brendan mccarthy writer of uh, mad yeah. max yeah exactly witness us the uk scriptwriters podcast <laughs> <laughs> see, see you on the gates of valhalla that's right we'll see All you right. there um but yeah no thanks for that uh thanks for that brendan um check out brendan's website as he's already talked about artbrendan.com definitely check out mad max if you haven't already but we'll, you should have read the thing at the start which will say don't listen to this Major if you spoilers. haven't seen it but you know see it again um it's out on blu-ray and dvd and all those things so you know you must get hold of a copy for your own personal collection and we'll see myself and danny will see you in the next podcast at yeah. some point and we'll just leave it to brendan to say goodbye to everyone all right, thanks, guys, for uh, giving me a chat. <laughs> yeah, and Cheers, I'll see you, see you again. All yeah. right, bye, bye.